Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Times studios, broadcasting as ever from the beach in the Space Coast of the last free state in America, Florida. It is the 27th of July, 2023, and we are delighted and honored to have in the studios today Tom DeShane, who is a retired Chief Master Sergeant with the 123rd Squadron Special Tactics Group of the Air National Guard. Did I get all that right? Yeah, 123rd Special Tactics Squadron of the Kentucky Air National Guard. The Kentucky Air National Guard. Fair enough. Okay, yep. we, we left out a shout out to Kentucky, which I hear is, is is coming back to being a free state after a little hiatus. So anyway, <laughs> thanks for taking the time to come on. Um, we'll kick off, right? Uh, basically, you know, uh, we'd love to have on the show folks who got a particular expertise and experience that maybe most people don't and they don't get real insights into, right? And so uh, right. maybe tell us a bit about or a lot about, quite frankly, your time as a combat controller, what you saw, where you know what you saw in your evolution there. Uh, I'll hand it over to you. If we have questions that I think will clarify for folks, I'll dive in. Sure, absolutely. Um, so just kind of give you a little bit of information about me. Um, I started out uh, my career into the Air Force back in 1987. Um, yeah, so quite a ways back. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I joined the Air Force just basically to get the uh, money for education. And then mm -hmm. I was going to do four years and get out. Right. But uh, 28 years later, um, mm -hmm. I retired from the Air Force. But uh, within that that time, uh, I, initially I went in to be into the Air Force to be a, uh, what they call a, a security police. And uh, when I was at basic training, they said, hey, if you want to come down and get this briefing about pararescue and combat control, uh, you can get out of basic training for a little bit of time. And uh, so I was like, yep, I'm in. I'm going to do that. So I went and sat down in the briefing and I found out about combat control and I and I fell in love with it. I was like, you know, I joined the Air Force. I wanted to do something fun. So um, I went out and took the, the uh, pass test, which is the uh, physical ability stamina test back then. Mm. Um, now they call it the uh, initial fitness test. But uh you know, I, I went out there and I took the test and I unbelievably, I passed it um, <laughs> just barely, you know, with no prep time or anything like that. I, I think I only had like, like about three seconds left on the run, but I still squeaked by. The benefit of youth. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and then high school three, you know, being three season athlete, I think that kind of helped. That would probably contribute a lot more than the youth, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, and then I entered my pipeline, um, you know, just like any other combat controller, uh, you know, the first school is the hardest, right? You have, uh, when I went through, it was called the, uh, um, the in-doc course, and it was just a, a butt kicker. Um, you know, they just beat us down, uh, built us up as a team. It was just uh, fitness all day, all day and all night, um, you know, just wearing us down. And, uh, from there, I ended up going to uh, dive school, um, jump school, survival school, Army Airborne School to learn how to jump out of airplanes. Uh, then the uh, air traffic control school, because as a combat controller, we're air traffic controllers by trade. Um, and then the, finally, the combat control apprentice course, which was... Uh, you know, the culmination of all this training that we've done, which was probably about a, a year, year and a half of uh, um, what we call a pipeline of schools. And um, then I finally put my beret on. 
And nice. I was like, awesome. So now I'm basically two years into my career already at this point. Um, and I got assigned to McCord Air Force Base out in Washington State, um, which I believe is now uh, uh, McCord, or, uh, Fort Lewis slash uh, McCord uh, Joint Base. But anyways, um, I spent the rest of my two years there, uh, but a lot of that time was deployed for Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I got to participate in that. I got the uh, certificate saying I was there. There you and, go. Uh, there but, you go. Yeah, it was uh, my first deployment, and I absolutely loved it. It was. Uh, yeah, let months. me jump jump back for a second for everyone who's listening. Yeah. So when you say, uh, you know, they 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 brought you in and told you all about the various options, you know, coming out of basic, you're not in basic training right now. Here are some of the options. What was it that clicked for you? What what, what did they say to you about? combat control specifically where you're like oh yeah that's it i'm doing that well um i wanted to do something fun and you know going through high school i was constantly looking for something fun something challenging and uh when they had the uh the what they had the film the old film projectors you know real right. real and they're showing that guys were jumping out of airplanes guys were scuba diving um they were doing air traffic control on dirt airstrips um and they had motorcycles and ATVs. Um, and I was like, well, that looks like a lot. I can of fun. do all that. That looks awesome. <laughs> and that's the big thing that most people don't get when they first hear about combat control. It really is the massive difference is air traffic control, which when people start to think about it, like in a war zone or outside of a major airport, that's very important, right? If you're going to guide planes and bombs and things within a very tight set of confines, like that is kind of one of the big differentiators about what you guys do versus a lot of other, a lot of other operators. Yeah. And then as I started digging into it and finding out more uh, about combat control, because, you know, at that point, all I knew was what was up on that film and, and what the uh, um, cadre member was telling us out in the audience. So as I dug into it and I started to find out a little bit about the history, um, I started to kind of develop, hey, this might be something that I, I might want to stick with. I might not want to go back to North Dakota State University and, and be an architect. Right. <laughs> as <laughs> compelling as that sounds versus bombs and motorcycles. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so that that ultimately, it was the challenge, I think, that was in front of me. I love having challenges. And that's where I actually seem to work the best. Mm. If I'm just sitting back on my laurels and in, in my easy chair like this, you know, things are kind of dull. I have, you know, I have so much rather be active in, in uh, you know, doing something uh, more important. Right. <laughs> and a little more adrenaline, quite frankly. Exactly. Yep. So. The re-up. So clearly your four-year plan evaporated because you found something you love doing. You got deployed. And that was. Yep. Um, and then from there, I mean, after you came back from um, Desert Storm, what was the, what was the major kind of next step? Yeah, so my next step, um, as I had gone through the pipeline, there was a class right behind me, um, and these guys were all from the Kentucky Air National Guard, and uh, they were starting up the first combat control flight in the National Guard, Air National Guard. Um, so I kind of got to know those guys, and I kept in contact with them when I got the McCord, and when I saw that I was going to get out, I saw an opportunity where I can still be a combat controller, but yet go to college, 
and still try to achieve that goal that I had. Mm. And when I got to, when I left active duty and went to the uh, National Guard, um, I was really surprised. Um, I was surprised at the the level of professionalism that these guys had, um, the amount of work that they had offered to me so mm. I could go out and do my job. So I, I ended up spending a few years as a traditional guardsman, went to school for just a very short time. And then I realized I want a full-time job here. So mm. they have, um, you know, most people assume National Guard, Air National Guard is uh, uh, one weekend a month and two weeks out of the year. Well, for a full-time guy, which is what we call active garden reserve uh, position, mm. um, it's just like being on active duty, uh, except for you're managing the programs of uh, the unit while everybody else, the traditional people are doing their jobs. You're sitting there and you're working and you're trying to get training set up. You're uh, fulfilling some exercises, um, deployments and all that sort of stuff. So, um, And that sort of process has evolved over time as it became clear, there's kind of a middle ground between pure active duty and reservists that we actually have to have something coordinating because we can't all be here two weeks a year, right? We, there has to be right. structure and some some percentage of, of the team has to be full-time. Is that, yep. is that always true or did that evolve over time as, as the- Yeah, it's always- it's always been true. Um, they've always had a full-time force uh, there. Uh, even, you know, if they're flying airplanes, there's full-time mechanics, uh, you know, to maintain the aircraft. There's full-time fuels, peoples. Um, every aspect of the Na Air National Guard, there's always somebody there full-time running the programs. Right. Make sure that everything's going smoothly, meeting all the, uh, you know, all the requirements that have to be accomplished. But um, you certainly want mechanics full-time. Who are dedicated to their task, <laughs> right? So, um, as a traditional guardsman, though, I mean, I still got to do my my uh, one week in a month, two weeks a year, but I was also still working uh, day in and day out. So maybe two or three days out of the week, uh, maybe I would come in and I would uh, uh, do some jump training, jumping out of airplanes, maybe going down to uh, the Ohio River and getting my dives in, my compass mm -hmm. dives. Um, or just, uh, you know, basic land ground uh, maneuvers and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. I'm always going to jump in when you jump, when you raise something that people may not know about. What's a compass dive? Ah, compass dive. Um, so it's, it's basically um, when you're given a certain point on the beach that you got to hit. So when you go underwater with your, on, in scuba, um, you have a compass board and you basically hold the compass board in front of you. Um, and you shoot for that target on the, on the beach. Mm. So, and you got to be proficient at it. Sure. Um, when you're in the oceans, you got to be cognizant of uh, tides and, uh, you know, the movement of the water and all that stuff and how long it's going to take you to get there. How much air do I have in my tank and all that sort of stuff. So there's, there's a level of proficiency that you have to maintain to be able to be good at it. So, mm. um, but yeah, so uh you know, that was me as a traditional guardsman. When I got my full-time position, it, it just, life became awesome. <laughs> so um, I spent my first 12 years as just an operator. Um, and that was just, you know, learning my craft, going going through the pipeline and then getting my team and getting uh, rated on the team, get my five level. Uh, so when you put your beret on, you're a three level. 
Um, and then when you get your team, then you're working to get your, your five level um, so you can start operating. Um, mm. And then after that, you want to work to your seven level where you can actually go out and work on your own, um, working airfields, doing air traffic control, uh, going out and being a JTAC, Joint Terminal Attack Controller, um, you know, with a, uh, another unit. So maybe a Special Forces unit or, um, you know, Navy that, that's, that, you point to one of the big differentiators that I've come to understand it is unlike most branches of the services, combat controllers are constantly embedded with units of Army, Marines, Navy, right? So it's it's very much a one or one or maybe two man show attached to someone else and 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 kind of stand alone. Is that is that are the other other branches do that or really is because of that special air traffic control ability that you really are kind of uniquely situated to be embedded with other groups. Yeah. So as combat controllers is pretty unique um, for the fact that we provide that, that ground forces to aircraft um, link. So we're providing the aircraft, what's happening on the ground. And then we're also talking to our ground forces commander, telling them, Hey, this, these are the aircraft that we have ahead above us that we can uh, use mm. to, uh, um, either for fires or for what we call uh, ISR, where you're, uh, you know, just evaluating what's going on around you. Um, but there's all sorts of, I don't know, what's the word for it? Um, different roles that combat controllers fulfill hmm. as that link between the, the ground and the Air Force, or not Air Force, but the uh, aircraft above us. Right. That, that's the major difference. Oh. Yep. Um, yeah. So after you got active, <laughs> you, moved, you moved all the way through that. And then we, it was it's just a lot of deployments, a lot of, you know, training Do you cycle through both or. Yeah. Uh, it, a lot of training. So, uh, we grew from a combat control flight, which was about 25 people, um, to a special tactics, um, squadron. And that grew us from that. 25 people up to about 75 and it added on our pararescue folks mm. and our special uh special op sorry special operations weather guys uh, who are now sr that's their new name for them um and then all our brand new uh, combat support folks so it really uh grew our unit um significantly and uh why we're doing all that growth there is probably about two years of growth bringing in new people, trying to fill all the positions that we had. Um, that's when all of a sudden 9-11 happened. Uh, mm -hmm. By chance, our unit was overseas. We were in Bulgaria doing a NATO exercise. And that's when 9-11 happened. We just happened to be on our rooms uh, just before we started all our, our uh, exercise missions. And we happened to watch, you know, the towers come down. And we're like, uh oh, <laughs> so we started packing up our gear, thinking we we're going to um, come straight back so we can turn around and, and head back overseas. Um, but they did continue on with the exercise. And, but we and then we shift back. But luckily, in those two years of the unit growing and getting some experience behind it, uh, when we did get back to the States, we got deployed right away and we were overseas, uh, I believe, by one November 2001. Um, no, it might've been middle of November. So 
And then my first job, my first deployment, I ended up going to Bagram Tower. And I was with the team that opened up uh, that airfield. So I was pretty excited about that. Um, and it was day-night uh, operations, working air traffic control, uh, not just U.S. aircraft, but yeah. it was all the NATO aircraft, foreign aircraft. I mean, we had uh, aircraft coming from all different nations. And we're trying to work out through the, all the uh, um, different accents as people right. were coming in and trying to provide air traffic control to them. To, to my listeners as well, I got to say, Tom used one of the most understated phrases just now. I mean, so you opened up Bagram Air Force at the base, the air base. At the time, right, wasn't that the space where the Northern Alliance was dug in like trench warfare against the Taliban? And they'd been stuck in a stalemate for years until you guys basically unlocked it with, with air power from above? Yeah. Um, yeah, so they had uh, the... Uh, um... The ODA came in and they seized the airfield, uh, started pushing the Northern Alliance away. And then the, uh, the the combat control, air traffic controllers, my team came in and we started uh, immediately bringing in aircraft and start uh, bringing in forces, bringing in equipment to that airfield. So, nice. yeah, it was kind of crazy at first, um, but we started to get a handle on it, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, everybody was safe. Aircraft were landing at night, blacked out. Um, aircraft were taxiing with no lights on, coming into the parking aprons with no lights on. You know, with uh, the operator, with the the marshaling guys out there trying to make sure you know the aircraft doesn't hit them. The aircraft doesn't, you know, all that sort of stuff. If so, another plane hit anything, yeah, trying to do that in the yeah. dark because lights would be very dangerous. And they yep, lights would be tracking. very dangerous. Yep. Um, and I was there at Bagram Tower uh, until like, uh, let's see, uh, February. Yeah, uh, no, towards uh, the end of February. Hmm. So until we finally handed it off to regular air traffic controllers. That's a really intensive contested three month period where it was yep. near daily combat to keep them off the airfield. Yep. Uh, you know, we work constantly uh, working Kazovacs where helicopters would bring in the wounded um, and they would do the transloads onto the fixed wing aircraft and then fly them off to to uh, Germany, you know, to, to help those guys out. So saw, saw a lot of I saw and worked a lot of those, hmm. um, which is always sad to see our operators uh, have to go through that. But, um, you know, what it is it yeah. is what it is at the beginning of any uh um, operation. So um, after that, uh, I redeployed up to our forward operating base, and then I ended up flying on uh, AC-130 gunships. So uh, so I finished the tower, and then I it was like two days later, I started flying on these gunships during Operation Anaconda. Mm. Um, and uh, Basically, again, I was the ground guy, but now I was sitting up in the aircraft behind the weapons officer. And uh, so we had a ground guy with attached to the teams and then one guy sitting behind the weapons officer on the aircraft. And we were making sure that, that you know, everything that we were doing was safe, making sure that there was not going to be any fratricide between um, our gunship and uh, our guys on the ground. So which worked out really well. Um, 
So I happen to be on uh, the uh, uh, one of the AC-130 gunships the same day that uh, um, um, that uh, Cunningham, Jason Cunningham, uh, Kerry Miller up on Roberts Ridge, uh, mm -hmm. Neil Roberts uh, thing, and uh, Jason, um, yeah, John Chapman, and all that right. stuff. So. Which is the only um, Medal of Honor ever, ever, actually ever caught on, on, on video because there was like sunlight watching. Absolutely. Yep. So we had just finished our mission and we were flying back. Um, and that's when that all uh, started to transpire. Uh, so as soon as I got on the ground at our base, um, I went straight into the operations center and uh, started to get involved in what was happening to our guys out on the ground. Because Kerry Miller, the PJ that was up on a hill, was part of my unit. So... I was very vested in it. And uh, Jason Cunningham, uh, just a couple days before that, I had been sitting there uh, in our, at Bagram Tower, talking to him about, you know, how he grew up, you know, shooting groundhogs and, and all that sort of stuff. And he was telling me all these cool stories. And then, you know, sadly, we lost him. Yeah. But the uh, good thing is I got the mill. So, um. But yeah, so did that uh, for a, a couple of weeks, and then that I ended up getting redeployed home. Right. So you were um, over there for like a couple of years, or or the, the, how long was I deployed over there? The, yeah, the very early part of the war. So you got there very very. Um. So I believe I got there mid November, and I was back home by uh, um, end of March. Wow, that's so, fairly fast. Oh. Yeah, it it wasn't too bad. Um, I was back home and then I got redeployed to an operations center. So where I got to, um, do some pretty cool stuff. Right. Which would make but, for a uh, story that we're not going to share. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, that's all. And was, and was that the, um, you were in for a number of years after that. Was it continuous redeployments back and forth? Or was it a lot more states right. work or just over, just a repetitive cycle over and over again? Repetitive cycle yep. makes it boring. But I mean, that was that's that's the kind of cycle back and forth is rest up, retrain, and get back out. Yeah, that's exactly it. So I uh, got back. Um, I ended up doing a quick uh, deployment, and then I came back home, and I ended up being the uh, chosen as the uh, team sergeant. So as the combat control uh, flight chief. And um, now my role had changed from being just an operator to um, being in charge of uh, 18 to 24 guys and making sure they're trained, equipped, and prepared to go to war, peacetime missions, all that. So um, my focus was you know, making sure the training was correct and specific for what they're going to be doing overseas. Mm. Um, so we started to do a lot of more direct action type training, a lot of more, uh, a lot more JTAC training, uh, joint terminal attack control. So we were out at the air force ranges, working the air with the airplanes, um, working on our skills to be able to put bombs on target. Um, and then, uh, which can, for, for listeners, that can be really crucial because we're talking about occasionally very close air support where close air support, planes 30,000 yeah. feet in the air and the enemy is a hundred yards away. That's not a, low, a lot of margin for error. You're dropping yep. something that height. In fact, that's almost no. That's no margin for error. Is that? Yep, really there's no margin for error. About? Is getting that exactly right? 
Yeah. So we spent a lot of time on that. We spent a lot of time on upgrading guys, you know, brand new guys. We're just getting a qualification and trying to get them uh, up to speed. And then uh, we ended up going to Iraq. Mm. Oh, so um, our unit got deployed to uh, um, to the northern part of Iraq. And uh, we covered down on all the JTAC uh, missions on the north side. Um, and uh, so our unit got a pretty big piece of Iraq, which was which was uh, was surprising to us. Um, mm. But a lot of JTACs were spread out across the two uh, two different operation areas, so Afghanistan plus Iraq. Um, so luckily, we got to do you know got to go into war right away, and and. Um, we had a did very well. So, and from your point of view, for civilian who doesn't quite know, when you say we did pretty well, what we what do you what are the metrics by which you judge the performance, the efficacy of what you know you, you and your teams have done? Um. Yeah. So, great question. <laughs> so, so what that means is, uh, you know, we got in. Um, we we uh, forward deployed, and then we deployed into uh, Iraq, into our locations. Um, we spread out along the green line. So in the north, there was a green line where the uh, PUK and the uh, PDK um, were lined up against the Republican Guard. So that was the Kurdish forces against the, uh, the Iraqis. Right. Well, um, the Turks are busy calling the the, the Kurds terrorists and separatists. Well, they're trying to fight a war on their on their own doorstep. Yeah, that was, I'm sure, very helpful for you all. But, right. Sorry. Well, we actually, so we joined up with the Kurds and yeah. uh, we were, you know, working with them um, and it actually worked out very well. Um, they were able to take us directly to where the targets were that we needed to move. That's through, helpful. <laughs> to move to, uh, to move down to um, Baghdad. So, um the first mission I got, well, I would say the first mission I got was very surprising to me because we hadn't worked, hadn't trained with B-52s um, hardly at all for the fact that uh, most close air support is done with, uh, you know, with a fighter jet, um, F-15, F-16s, uh, A-10s. But all of a sudden, because we were in the north and we were so far away from, from the coast, None of those smaller jets could get to where we were at, so they were bringing in B-52s. So we ended up working almost primarily B-52s the whole entire time, um, mm. learning new tactics, techniques, and procedures kind of on the fly. Because they're, so, they're also deploying different types of munitions, and the fighter jets would be more guided versus the B-52, which were less. Right, the B-52s, they had bombs that were retrofitted with GPS, so um, we were able to give them accurate uh coordinates and they were able to get those bombs on target very very successfully um and uh yeah Big thing. <laughs> um it was it was a it was very interesting one working with the kurds and then two um how quickly the iraqi forces basically packed up as soon as we moved and engaged them um, the next day they were packed up and they were moving right. and they were heading no, south. No, thank you. I don't need this. Right. You know, no. I think a lot of them remembered the first Iraq war and that they didn't want to be around for that to happen again. No, that did not look like it was a good idea to be on the receiving end of 
at all. No. Well, I'm curious. Shift gears slightly. If if um, you know, for 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 young men listening, and I guess women too, but as far as I gather, it's been mainly men. Um, what's your thought? What's your thought? What what sort of guidance would you give to some you know 18 year olds? Like this sounds like the greatest thing ever. I want to go do this. Like, what do you say to folks like that? What do you what you know pluses minuses? What do I say to those guys um, and gals is, uh, you know, know why you want to do it. Hmm. Um, you know, just like uh, any business person, I want to open up a business and I want to be successful at it. Know why you want to do it and be very specific and drill down into it. So how you do that is you educate yourself, you know, start reading books alone at dawn, uh, anything about combat control that you can digest and get into your brain. And then you can start figuring out specifically what it is that's driving you towards that, towards that goal to become a combat controller. Um, so for me, when I went through, uh, ultimately, um, my, I built my commitment um, to be a combat controller was basically, I just wanted to be the tip of the spear. I want to do something fun for my life. Um, I wanted it to be tough. Um, because, and I knew I was going to be persistent enough to be able to get to, get to that end goal, mm. become a combat controller. So, um, that's what I try to explain to, to those young people. Um, you have to be really good at setting goals. Um, not just, um, long-term short-term goals, but you have to make them specific, put some measurement behind them. Um, and, and just start laying some focus behind that. Uh, and then be prepared to have immediate goals. So as you're going, if you're going to become a combat controller, that train initial training is going to be extremely challenging physically. It's going to be extremely challenging mentally. Um, and at times you're going to be hungry. You're going to be tired uh, physically. And you know, you're, you're going to start getting some negative thoughts in there. So you're going to have to come up with some really immediate goals. Um, one goal, one way I did that when I was going through training was I was not a great distance runner. And to go through this training, you have to be a distance runner. So ultimately, my immediate goals when I was running is I would look ahead and I look at an electric pole and I'm like, all right, I'm staying with the team to that electric pole. And I get there. It's like, all right, pat on my back. Next electric pole, next stop sign. Right. And that's how I, I made it through the first couple of weeks until I finally started getting my legs. Uh, but you have to be really good at setting goals and then trying to accomplish them um, by being specific, setting those measuring goals to get there. Um, and then just like uh, any other business, you gotta have you have to have a vision, um, and you have to uh, visualize what that success is going to be on the other end. I think that was one of the main reasons why I was so successful, not just in, in training to become a combat controller, but also um, in my career as a operator, as a, uh, a team chief, as uh, a chief master sergeant, special tactics squadron, is I was, I was able to visualize what success looks like. And I, I tried to point myself that direction. So um, when I'm, if I was talking to a kid, I would tell them, hey, you know, visualize what success is and, you know, talk to yourself positively so that you're you're always um, 
looking for the optimistic side of where you're going. And, and that kind of rules back into, you know, on the team, I always talk to my team. I'm like, Hey, no, I didn't want negativity on the team. You know, if, uh, if the team started getting negative, we would stop and be like, okay, what's going on here? And then we would talk about it and then we would get back into it because obviously negativity is, is a, a bad force that you don't want to have around you. Oh, um, especially saps more energy than anything. Right. Especially for small teams as operators. And we're going to go out and we're going to work in, you know, a four man team, uh, seven man team, man, it just takes one person to really um, bring that whole group down and, and kind of lose, lose its, uh, its trajectory of where it wants to go. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then just ultimately be prepared. That make, um, makes makes sense. One thing which maybe you've got a thought on, but I found fascinating having spent um, a bunch of time at Lackland and other, uh, other listening to some of the training uh, uh, courses, and of course hearing the difference between the uh, the, uh, the, master, the master sergeant who's busy explaining how we're going to kick everyone's ass, uh, and having the uh, colonel in command step in and say, "Oh, you mean lovingly care and nurture so people can reach their best potential?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's what you meant by kick their ass. Um, yeah, I I find it absolutely fascinating having you know having to deal with running teams big and small in the private sector um, and the difference of how that works. What what I've heard uh, many of the say to me, especially kind of in the immediate relation to how poorly the Russians have done within say Ukraine recently is the very strong presence of the American military tradition of the non-commissioned officer class, right? That that, that is the main difference. And going all the way back, all the way back to the, to the, you know, Concord Green in 1775. You had a bunch of generals on horses with big, very helpful brass plates to aim at, and then a bunch of privates. And so when the heads cut off the snake, they just wandered around uselessly. I mean, maybe you will give a little comment about how that military structure works and why why it makes us such an incredibly effective fighting force. Yeah, I mean it does. It you know, it especially in the combat control uh, career field there is a lot of autonomy given to each operator to mm. be able to do his job. Um, so if you're comparing that to Russia and, and, and us, um, I don't think the Russian forces or Ru Russian command gives their enlisted or whatever they call them uh, any, folks any that, that in autonomy at all to yeah. be able to make a decision on the fly. Obviously um, we're given our rules of engagement and how and the rules that we're supposed to stay within and it's up to the operator to be able to make that decision and and uh um still play within that box and uh as uh combat controllers we're we're basically even though when when you're going through training um it feels like everything is decided for you and it's very formalized um you're starting to get the idea from the instructors that, hey, there's going to be a bigger world outside of here. So we're making sure you're going to be the right guy for this mm. career, career path. But understand that as so, soon as we identify you're the right guy, then the aperture is going to open up a little bit for you and you're going to start to be able to make uh, you know, sound decisions and uh, still be and trusted that you're going to stay within that box 
um, but yet accomplish your mission. So does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. It also came up. One of the things I found absolutely fascinating was how much of, you know, a lot of combat controllers have, have kind of said, said this in different ways, but I know that at the training, um, weekend we went through the training day we, we kind of mirrored the uh cadets it was uh so, so this is where you know the individual comes to die and become part of the team i found the paradox kind of fascinating right because it's a team but also every individual is really highly trained and highly focused and highly um well independent in terms of making decisions right so i i, I found that incredibly fascinating right was it it's not a team in the sense of i'm just being told what to do it's a team in that i'm making decisions but i'm making them consciously with the interests of everyone around me at hand and i imagine that's a big chunk of the selection process so you might get perfectly excellent people who are perfectly excellent athletes who are perfectly excellent in whatever but if they are unable to work effectively in a team that kind of alone is enough to wash them out because they're going to be a weak link is that is that is those are those sort of criteria conscious when 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 you know candidates are being evaluated at each stage of the pipeline? Is that how they look at it? Um, so there are certain attributes that the instructors are looking for, um, and uh, part of that is you know are you a team guy? Um, do you uh, you know are you just outwardly focused on your team? You know. Obviously, it's very difficult. If you're in a difficult situation, yeah, you're going to be focused on yourself. But you have to also realize that you're part of that team. And you have to be able to keep an eye on your buddies to make sure that they're getting everything accomplished um, that they need to accomplish. And if they're not, man, I need to step in. And I need to help them out. So I, I believe that's um, as the instructors are going through, they're looking for these certain attributes and these students are grading them by those attributes. And uh, that's what's getting us very good uh, new operators out there in the battle space. And it's still a massive attrition rate. Like all very, you know, no one starts the pipeline who is not qualified to potentially complete the pipeline. And my understanding is despite a lot of money poured in statistics and examination and psychology, it's still kind of hard to predict. It's, it's still like a 12% completion rate. And that's no, there's no disparagement on those that don't make it. It's just this incredibly hard thing to do. And that number stayed kind of constant, right? Yeah. Intake it, it, it's, it's hard to select. It's hard to find, uh, you know, just the right guy. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great people out there, but they're not uh, specifically the right guy for this job. So. Yeah. Um, the instructors do an awesome job, in my opinion, um, you know, doing doing this selection process, putting the guys through the rigors, um, trying to do it safely um, because, well, yeah. So ultimately it comes right down to at the very end, you know, you got this operator, he has to work effectively on this team, this small team, um, and there has to be a lot of trust in in that teammate being that, that trust starts out in, in that guy's pipeline. He starts building trust with all the other op operators as he's going through that pipeline until he gets that beret on. And now, okay, you're trusted to be able to put the beret on. Now you get to the team and now you got to start working again 
uh, trying to get to that five levels. So you're still building that trust for your teammates. Um, and uh, it, it's a very important piece of being a combat controller for the sake that, yeah, we're a team of combat controllers, but like you said, we deploy out onesies and twosies to all these other special warfare teams and they're also teams and they are also bred in that same uh, mold. So we have to be able to integrate into those teams easily and they have to have the trust in us that we're going to be there to do the job and also be a solid teammate. And um, that's what I believe is one of the, uh, probably one of the keys to combat control success over the last 20, 25 years is for the fact that we've been able to integrate to those into those teams and be a, a teammate right off the bat. Um, because they have that, they've been built, we've been building that trust and, and now it's, it's just ingrained. Oh, we got a combat controller. Awesome. We got our, our ground right. air interface guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I thank you very much. I know your time, your time is precious. I appreciate you taking the time. Are there any sort of final words? Um, that's a wrong phrase. Any sort of kind of final thoughts or comments that you'd give to to folks who are, you know, they can, you know, certainly go read Alone, Alone at Dawn. Um, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a movie soon. Uh, and, uh, you know, the other information about it is, you know, in general, is there sort of one final message you'd leave people with? Sure. Um, yeah, if you decide that you want to become a combat controller, Man, it, there's no, it's not rocket science. I mean, there's so much information out there. Uh, if you get on the internet and you start doing a search for combat control, um, learn about it, fill your head full of, full of information, figure out why you want to do this job, and then start preparing yourself um, to get into the program. Um, and what do I mean by preparing yourself? One, uh, prepare yourself physically. That totally makes sense. Everybody can see all the, uh, the specifics on uh, what the requirements are to get in uh, physically, but also start working on the, the mental piece because that's where we lose where we lose a lot of guys is they're just not mentally prepared. Um, and what that means is, uh, you know, how do you deal with stress? If you're not very good at dealing with stress, we'll start. Uh, doing some stress scenarios and try to get yourself better at it. Um, and, uh, you know, learn a little bit about nutrition, um, learn about how to manage the stress, the anxiety, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's so much information out there, but ultimately, like I said, get prepared um, physically and mentally. So hmm. I, I would guess that most guys uh, or about 80% of the guys are, are washed out or quit uh, because of the mental piece over the physical piece. Right. Well, and that's, I was one of the, uh, one of our, our, our common friends, he, he, he laughed. He was somewhat joking, but he said, you know, he, he, he uh, there's so much water training, right? As, as I've heard the instructor say repeatedly, time to practice drowning, right? And a lot of it is controlling panic, controlling that lizard brain that when you feel oxygen leaving, like that panic is, what you have to get over and a lot of guys wash out in, in the water because it's really, really tough. And uh, they do. And um, they, they let those negative thoughts start to build up in their head. And then all of a sudden they'll have uh, panic, which leads to uh, momentary weakness. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I can't do this. Okay. I quit. 
you know, and then they're sitting on the bench watching everybody else do the, do the task. And they're like, I shouldn't have quit. Why'd I do that? Right. It's too late. <laughs> it's the it. yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're watching something go through it. One of the guys who, you know, been in 25 years and he, he was, he was saying, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the ocean. I didn't grow up as a swimmer uh, from the Midwest somewhere. And he said, I got to the pool edge the first time to go in and I was so terrified I forgot the phrase I quit, so I went in. And he's being facetious, but um, it it was it was it's predominantly practical thought for anyone, whether they're going into through the military or not, is that ability to realize that panic will cause you to to make really horrible decisions, and even until you actually go through something that causes that sort of adrenaline rush and that sort of panic. You, you think panic is a one-way street. It just happens and then you freeze up and, and like you'll drown. But it's not, right? You can control it. You can control you panic, can. which is which I, I found amazing, even as I got to understand that later in life, you can control panic. And it's not really readily taught in most places. But you it can, was, you can build I, confidence was, through conditioning. Ultimately, you know, the more just, times you do something, you know, the, the better you're going to get at it. And that includes dealing with panic. I mean, that's why you have police officers and EMS people who are very good at their jobs in very stressful situations. And it's because they're doing it day in and day out. Yep. And we can all see the results tragically on the street and, and, and at least sometimes with police where they can't control panic, right? right? You don't yep. squeeze off 19 rounds out of your Glock if you're, <laughs> if you're controlling your panic. Right. No. So, no. um, Anyway, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, and, and again, thanks for all you and what you guys do and have done uh, for the country. I don't think the people have a sense of what our military does at the time. I really don't think they have a clue. Um, but for all those those of you who are listening who are intrigued, remember one of the most common adjectives Tom used was fun. <laughs> so I enjoyed my career. It's fun, no, but exactly, baby. That's that's it. As as a uh, very briefly, uh, old friend of mine was um, debating what to do. He was uh, army tank commander uh, and had risen up, and now he's a one-star general. And he was thinking about what to do, whether to retire. And I remember talking to him, and it's just it's a slightly different mentality than a lot of people go into the civilian world, right? And he said, "Look, a lot of us are just in this for the juice. Like they won't let me drive a tank through buildings in the private sector. <laughs> I get to do that all the time if I want to." <laughs> You know, it's not a job if you enjoy it. <laughs> not a job if you enjoy it, exactly. So, uh, for all, for, I'm, I'm delighted that you took advantage of all the taxpayer-funded uh, fun that you had. Got <laughs> back in control, um, and uh, we will sign off as we usually do for all of my listeners. That uh, you can learn a lot more. We'll put some links there on the bottom, and there's a great book to read and all the rest of it. And uh, lastly, please turn off the mainstream media who are lying to you and tune into Messy Times. Thanks so much. Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin wallet, blockchain, stablecoins, Metanet, the evolution of money. Everybody is talking about Bitcoin today. But what exactly is it? Learn the basics from experts. Learn what Bitcoin is, how it works, and why it matters. Bitcoin 101, your ultimate guide to the fundamentals of blockchain.